0: b b to Check the mic. danger zone It got a to the danger zone
1: <laughs> yeah. God damn it, Maverick!
0: <clears throat>
1: <clears throat> Thank you very much, Matt, for what I assume is a very beautiful rendition. Because... I- I don't know what that song is supposed to sound like because I may have seen Top Gun once or twice, but under the age of 12. So I probably won't watch the new one. And and what's so annoying for every one of these goddamn remakes that you're not an obsessive fan of the original is that that throughout it's, hey, hey, childhood you. Remember when we did this last time? Remember how much you liked it? Well, we're gonna we're gonna do it again. Didn't you like it that we did it again? So I I I just assume that that song is
0: part of this. It is like it's not just in Top Gun. Top Gun is about twenty five percent that song, about fifty percent aerial combat, and about another twenty five percent like low key homoeroticism, thinly masked by a heterosexual plot.
2: Yeah, I'm picturing lots of montage behind that song.
0: Oh yeah. We need a montage. Well, like, if
2: that's
0: a there's a bit of there's a little bit of a way of expressing this point, which is that anytime you hear that song, the actual homosexual energy in the movie is being expressed usually by these men fighting with one another, since they can't actually consummate their love the way that they want to. Uh, he's stuck with a boring old woman for most of the movie, but in the air with his bros, that's where the real love can come through.
1: Well, it's funny you say that because. Like I said I've I think I watched it twice but it the image there's two images that are imprinted on my mind from the movie and one of them is when he flies upside down uh, on top of I guess a Russian plane but the other scene that imprinted itself in my prepubescent mind and maybe this explains a lot is that really horny beach volleyball scene again it's it's not
0: bad <laughs> like it's not one of those movies that I would say is so bad it's good. It's got like produ- real production values. It's reasonably well directed. Um, the acting is fine in it. It's definitely like the most '80s movie you'll see, though. Like it's right up there with Commando, Terminator, mostly just like a lot of Schwarzenegger, Rambo, all those kind of films. And
1: Top Gun is what like the the. The gayest straight film you could watch. It is.
0: The song signifies the displacement of desire because it's very clear that Tom Cruise wants to get it on with at least a couple of the men. But obviously, (laughs) it's the Reagan era. I can't do that. So he has to settle for boring old women instead.
1: Uh, Are they in the Navy? Are they Navy pilots by any chance or Air Force?
0: They fly off of aircraft carriers. I'm not actually sure if they're in the Navy or the Air Force. All I know is that they fly jets real good. And apparently, he does the same in the sequel. So,
2: homosociality channeled through acceptable venues like
0: warfare. Exactly. Have you seen the
3: new one? Is it? Is the new one even it's out?
0: The, yeah, it is. It's and it's number one at the box office. Not just number one. It's a massive, like Marvel scale hit. Made hundreds of millions of dollars opening weekend. So, let's see. If right now, users... this is why I pitched this episode. The number one TV show in the world in the world is an '80s revival show. The number one song in a lot of places is an 80s hit based upon that TV revival, and the number one movie is a sequel to a movie that came out in the 1980s, decades later uh, with the original cast. I guess
2: the listeners can now guess what we're going to talk about, because what comes to mind when you think of that song, (laughs) Top Gun, Yuppies,
1: Counterculture, (laughs) Blade Runner? Well, before we get maybe too far into this, I should say hi to them. Greetings, listener, and welcome back to The Pill Pod. As you can probably guess, Matt chose the topic of the day, which is 80s revival slash nostalgia slash the structure of desire, which will be fun. I don't know. I feel a bit out of my depth. I don't feel nostalgia for the 80s. I don't know that I like the 80s particularly as compared to other decades. And other than like Metallica, I'd, I'd I would struggle to try to come up with a song that came from the eighties, besides like Thriller.
3: Thriller is seventies, I think. Oh
0: fuck! No, it was 19- <laughs> it was the nineteen eighties. Michael Jackson was, was a- it?
3: Okay, I thought it was. I yeah. thought it was maybe late seventies.
0: No. you're thinking of Off the Wall, which is an album he released you in know the nineteen seventies.
3: You know plenty of songs from the '80s. You just don't know that they were made yeah, in the '80s. But like, exactly. there's just so many songs. It,
2: from it. It's confusing with music too because they last so long. Sometimes, like, no,
1: no, that isn't that isn't what I meant. Like, I know "Born in the USA" was probably in the '80s. "Born in the
2: USA" yeah. is probably '80s. Like David 80s. Bowie defines the '80s, but he yeah. started way before. Defines the '80s. Like so many, good, so many classic just, David
3: Bowie songs. Clean, so much Madonna. So many Madonna. classic David Bowie songs. So much Madonna. Old Madonna. You too. So much yeah. Michael yeah. Jackson. Kate Bush.
1: Yeah, I mean to clarify, there are certainly songs that I know that are from the 80s, but I do not know that they are from the 80s. I've probably heard them in like movie soundtracks and shit like that. Whereas like the only albums that I know from the 80s are
0: are really just Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. Uh, Def Leppard. I mean, have you never sat there and listened to Pour Some Sugar on Me? Yeah.
1: No. Although I think you sang it at karaoke before.
0: That's like a fucking 80s tune if ever there was one. Break the batter.
1: The batter. If we're talking about our desire Beat being carried me. back to the 80s, mine has never has been. I, I don't think I like anything about the 80s.
0: Really? You've never seen Terminator? Two I was, mean, come on, if better. you haven't seen Terminator, then Terminator you gotta 2 is far, a
3: far better movie. It is a far better
0: nights. movie, I agree, but like the first one is still pretty good. Aliens, you know?
1: Yeah, but it took us, we had to be done farting around in the 80s for the true greats to emerge. Deftones, Nirvana... Limp Bizkit. oh god, that's the
3: first one that comes. to mind. <laughs> that's the first thing that comes to mind. That's so funny. Keep rolling, rolling, rolling.
1: Wait, was that was that even nineties?
2: Yeah, it was. I think it so. was.
3: Well, no, some of it was early two thousands. That's
2: nineties though. We're 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 getting ahead of ourselves now. What, what inspired this episode today? There's a lot yeah. of 80s nostalgia coming out in Netflix and all sorts of venues like that, right? We've got Stranger Things. We've got Cobra Kai coming out, oh, rebooting right. the yeah. Karate
1: Kid. There's it. a lot going on. Yeah, lots of examples to go to. And I think what I want to stress here is we're talking about a specific imaginary rehabilitation of a version of the '80s rather than the '80s themselves.
2: I so when I said to my partner that we're gonna do '80s nostalgia, she said, um, "Oh, you got it all wrong. The '90s is what's cool right now." And I was like, "Oh, fuck. Okay, I can't keep track of it all. We're all products of the '80s, are we not? We're all products no, no, no. of the
0: you '80s." You are right that people keep predicting that at some point we're gonna firmly enter into like '90s nostalgia mode, but it keeps I on think threatening. We're in both men. I think I yeah, think we're wrong. kind of been a I think, I think we're in a phenomenal period. Where this year, like, the 80s has won out. Last year, like, the 90s was probably dominant. And eventually, we're just going to move smoothly into 90s nostalgia. But we're still in, like, that weird liminal zone where we haven't quite decided culturally to move I think on Will
2: Smith and the so-called slap that was heard around the world uh, kind of prevented the 90s nostalgia <laughs> wave completely. Because when I think of 90s, I'm like, oh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Everything that they wear in that show is just pure 90s fashion. It's like the 80s, but then everyone went
1: colorblind and started dressing with all this color. Well, this is the problem with Zoomers defining taste. is They just see the past as this one... It's like Bergson's pure past. They just selectively pull things from it, and now they're making taste. I see people wearing baggy jeans again, like it's cool. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs>
0: and I think yeah, that I f- might be part of it, also because
1: yeah,
2: baggy. G- Gen jeans. X
0: right now is still in charge of most of the culture productions. Think like the are they the Duffer Brothers? Yeah, but like they're starting to lose. They're start. They're starting to lose out to us. It's only a matter of time, and when we come to power uh, firmly and. Aren't scone in the halls of the cultural industry? Obviously, we're just going to produce endless amounts of 90 schlock and remakes. But the thing is, we're never going to have
1: we're not we're never, g- never going to have the disposable income that the Gen Xers do.
0: That's true. Though in
1: terms of pandering to us, I'm waiting for what is surely at this point an inevitability because they're just leaving IP on the table. But that is the Fight Club remake or the Fight Club, uh, Paramount Plus. Series, because you know that has to happen. Though the chances that it are worth watching are are very, very slim.
0: We don't need to remake good things. What we need to remake is schlock that can be like endlessly regurgitated and recycled for a new generation. We need
3: to remake Fight Club to be uh like the new, like woke version of Fight Club that takes away all the toxic masculinity. Oh my God,
1: gender inclusive Fight Club.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: What is that? A, an imaginary man beating the shit out of a woman in a parking lot but later we find out that she just beat the shit out of herself oh God. <laughs> imagine that week on the internet
2: <laughs> as we uh as we millennials move into the positions of uh dominance in society i believe the 90s will come back exactly but right now it seems to be gen xers and they bring with them the 80s and the whole uh what, like I I'm not gonna try and define what the '80s is in a few sentences, but all that is coming back because it's the it's the oh. Gen Xers right now. I can talk Wall Street, Coke, Reagan, Trump. Yeah, oh, that's exactly. I re- what I really yeah.
3: like what I really like about the '80s, like I would would say that I actually have like some '80s nostalgia, even though I was born in the '80s and don't really remember them. But um, what I like about it is like <laughs> I, I think 10 the days music, the although it's so the music, although it's so like. A lot of it's so cheesy. Oh, yeah. Um, what I I like what I like about some of the pop music in that time is just the way they were experimenting with synthesizers and drum machines in a way that would, like, go on to influence, like, a lot of pop music today. And, like, you can tell how, like, the way that they do it, it's just so zany, and I like the experimentation. Actually, me and my, my group of friends often still, like, uh, kind of, like, it began as just sort of for jokes. Like, we play a lot of 80s hits when we were, like, at Cottage, uh, at Cottage, um, Parties and stuff like that, just because there's like something fun about like the use of drums, the use of synthesizers, and in fact, to this day, like some of my kind of more contemporary like favorite bands that I like listening to are kind of like '80s style pop synth bands like FM84 or like uh, something I forget something '83. Like they make these either instrumentals and sometimes vocals with like that '80s reverb, which like maybe we can play a clip or or something where like the voice just sounds really echoey. That was so classic in the '80s. Couple bands right now that are like almost reproducing music like that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, got- I'm sympathetic to that stuff. I also really like John Hughes movies. That's my other favorite thing from the 80s, like, uh, you know, Breakfast Club and like, uh and like oh, uh, Ferris God. Bueller's Day Off, and all those movies are like great. I actually recently rewatched. And, and that's another thing recently. that's had a Re- long,
0: so, long self life. Like, I mean, the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, has made no secret about the fact that a lot of their younger heroes are consciously modeled off of John Hughes characters. Uh, I mean, first you had Spider-Man, where John Watson, the director, basically said, "Yeah, I'm doing a John, <laughs> John Hughes movie set in high school, except you know with a superhero." And then I think Miss Marvel is coming out now, and they said exactly the same thing, like, "Oh, John Hughes, you know, she's young, she's trying to make her way in the world, yeah, that kind of thing." Can I ask yeah.
1: y'all, this is a theory podcast. Where does a uh, theory fit in? We got we got ontology we could talk about. We could talk about pastiche, or are we just could our be episode better? on postmodernism
2: with Leotard's book is basically I mean he published it in seventy nine, but okay, I would say like Alien came out that year too, right? So we've postmodernism.
0: No, I th- I think yet yeah, your short definition was really good. You have Reagan, cocaine and Steven yeah. Spielberg movies. If um, those were if you needed three Wall things Street. to summarize the 80s? Greed I is good. <laughs> Wall Street would be good too also. So there's four. You got all those.
2: And The Wolf of Wall Street came out
0: about a oh god, about a decade ago now. Fuck i am old. No. I I think I can understand at least a part of the appeal from a kind of conservative standpoint though, because one of the things about reactionary nostalgia is it does almost invariably tend to operate in waves of about 30 years. So when Reagan was in power, One of the major promises that he put forward pretty consistently was a return to Ike, you know, the Eisenhower era, uh, which at that point was presented as, you know, the kind of great moment in America where it defeated all its enemies. It occupied about 50% of the world economy or so. And everybody had a job and women didn't have to go into the workplace. So traditional masculinity was upheld and everybody kind of knew their place in the American world order.
2: And that makes a lot of sense because a big chunk of not only our nostalgia for the 80s but the nostalgia that was actually present in the 80s was for the 50s right you had you had movies like greece which came out just before the 80s but whatever the outsiders a lot of socs and greasers you had a lot of those kind of movies coming out pining back for the 60s well pre-60s even because right because the 80s was the neoliberal revolution so there's a big turnaround from you know the welfare state towards a neoliberal kind of setup. So they built their own cultural constellation of references, and I don't know what that means for us today. Now that we're sort of reviving the '80s in a certain way through Marvel and,
0: no, and Stranger think, yeah,
2: Things, and
0: that you sort can see of that stuff. very blatantly. Not necessarily with nostalgia for Reaganism, because I think that brand is too toxic for anybody except for the Trumpists to really appeal to. Putting all that aside, though, you you definitely still eat, the same kind of nostalgia for a world that's conceived as comparatively solid, where the geopolitics, yes, were are frayed, but at least we were internally uh, committed uh, to our belief systems, uh, where you see characters who are morally comparatively unambiguous, right? You don't really see a lot of moral ambiguity in things like Stranger Things or Top Guns.
1: Well, this speaks to, I mean, I completely disagree with you about the 80s own self-conception, because the 80s... Uh, represents to me the the vigilante whereas the vigilante used to be you know the cowboy on the frontier the 80s features for the first time the vigilante as a cop and the cop is trying to fight against the system because you know the system's getting nothing done so you have the rebellious cop uh, death wish I think the death death wish was a little bit earlier but the 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 die hard above the law, I mean, it's right there in the name. You do have this moral ambiguity, but the the fear is that the system will get nothing done, so we need these these individuals to step outside of the system and take matters into their own hands if we want criminality to be punished. Though, Matt, I, I do agree with you that the, the resurgence of what we're seeing is basically the, the childhood 80s. It's, you know, remaking E.T. through Stranger Things or remaking It, which is, you know, kids running around and playing in their neighborhood
0: yeah absolutely and i think that's a recurring theme on a lot of 80s blockbusters quite frankly uh where there's usually this pristine community uh that's perceived as being largely without flaw uh, until either some intrusive other comes in uh like it you know the clown uh and disrupts the harmony of that community uh or to the extent that it is willing to be socially critical, it's always in a way that's very removed from reality. So take E.T., right? Uh, you have an alien that's being mistreated by the government, uh, but it's not a living person. It's not anything that we could recognize as comparable to our political reality. It's literally an alien from outer space that people just want to study, right? So there's a kind of uncritical component to a lot of the films that are produced in the era. And I think that's all if there's something that people pine back to, again, the innocent quality of them. So look, I, I'm coming I'm coming to a thesis here, I think, on the spot,
1: sort of. If we split eighties movie movies culture, media culture, into on the one hand, we have the pastoral, the safe space, the suburb, uh, white people pretty much. Yeah. And then on the other hand, we have the big city, which is full of criminality and gangs. That that half of it is expressed in dystopian futures. You know, the system can't do anything and this coincides historically with the dismantling of the welfare state in the 80s and the dystopian sci-fi of the 80s is all these city images uh blade runner which i think robocop. You could ex- ro- yeah robocop oh, which yeah. i think you could say expresses a a popular anxiety of suburban america towards urban america but right now the popular remakes the popu- the revival of the 80s is the revival only of that suburban america as seen on screen and there might be there might be uh counterexamples but we reproduce their fantasy and their anxiety um, maybe we have a similar one it's remember the good old days in the pasture where we were safe we had our little group of quirky friends, and our biggest problem in life was the jocks that bullied us. That's the, that's what's being remade.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're up. That, that's a really good point. Yeah, because if you look at a lot of these suburbia, small town films, with a few exceptions, and I mean we're speaking in very general terms, they do tend to follow the model that I was talking about, where either they're perfect and an invader comes in and disrupts that, or uh, there is some mistreatment, uh, usually of a kind of fantastic creature uh, or another. Uh, by the government, but it's not the problem with a small town. It's somebody who's coming from afar, like the FBI or the G-Men, uh, who don't share the kind of homey values of the people living in that town. And so they bring with them their kind of schmarmy elitist attitude. But most of the city movies I could think of in the 80s, like Terminator or Blade Runner, the one that Eric brought up, they do have Robo this kind Cop. of dystopic. RoboCop, yeah,
3: great example. Like, have Judge Dredd also? Yeah. <laughs> That's 90s. That's 90s. Oh, is it? Yeah,
2: Oops. not for sure. Getting our getting our decades. Then
1: you're you're brushing under like the the loss of the welfare state. You're brushing under the crack epidemic. You're brushing off exactly. like the the. I think New York went bankrupt. I think that was 70s. It was like 76 or so. But New York yeah, it went was bankrupt. was
3: like cleanup after that. Yeah.
1: So it's like uh, those problems are set in the future, but then. Our reproduction now, I mean, based on the few examples that we've given, I'm sure there's others, but the reproduction now is not of that. The The problem cities are futuristic, whereas our nostalgia goes back to small-town America. Yeah, that
2: is really oh, interesting.
1: That makes me want to say, like, there's,
2: there's a kind of resistance to go back to those sort of sci-fi dystopias and, and sort of, or even just the sci-fi movies that kind of imagine themselves in the future. There's a kind of resistance to going back and seeing how we actually have fallen very short of their visions of the future back then. Like if you go back to Blade Runner, and movies some of those movies are absurdly soon in their visions too where like blade runner's like 2020 or something like that like it's going to be all like that so even if you go back to the jetsons i'm pretty sure they thought it was going to be like that by the 90s or something like that right like absurdly soon to reach that level of development but there's a certain resistance to going back and looking at how we've not met those expectations, and so we just go back to the small town examples instead, and be like, "Ooh, look how things used to be! Used to be so cute
1: and quaint." Yeah, I find it. I find it interesting that this is because co- it's it's like safe space being invaded by the alien other, and in some cases it's a literal alien. Uh, in other cases, it's it. You know, these each of these, including the Stranger Things, they're they're biking around free. Their parents don't know where they are and it's okay because it's safe here. But then there's this foreign element, an alien, some to- the government in other cases, that is uh, breaking into the safe space. And I wonder if that's coded as uh, something else. I don't want to speculate too hard. But it's interesting that that is being reproduced now and I kind of wonder why. It might just be simply that, you know, the directors remember their childhood like that as a simpler time, but it also might be some sort of deeper coded anxiety about our our safe pastoral, homey space being invaded by this other or that other or the government or you could code it racially maybe, whatever it is. It's interesting though that it's being reproduced like that now.
3: One of the things it's like, you know, the way that this nostalgia is kind of it's like a fantasy. But earlier we were kind of talking about. The, like, you know, the 80s was this time of Reagan and the financialization and, and Pills said, well, that's like no, or maybe it was Eric, you know, no one remembers that. And I think that's actually linked to like the, the, the way that this nostalgia is so uh, fantasy oriented, because obviously, like all that bad stuff needs to be like excised, right? It's like no one's going to remember. So not only for like, do we just, well, part of it's just that we remember the images, right? Like we think about like the neon colors, the bright lights, the like, you know, the hair metal bands, the fashion, right? So it's like image based fantasy, but 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 then so so obviously like what would be the first thing to like be removed would be like you know the 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 sort of like structural inequalities that were behind the scenes of that right like that wouldn't be contained in the fantasy clearly um, so that's I was just gonna kind of add to that point before.
0: Well, Jameson had a really interesting thesis in his book um, Archaeology is the Future: A Dream Called Utopia," uh, where he pointed out that the 1980s was the last movement you genuinely saw. A domestic insurrectionary uh, aesthetic emerge. Uh, interestingly enough, he says it's cyberpunk, right? Uh, particularly in things like Blade Runner or Neuromancer. There's this real anxiety about where the future was going. And he thinks that's in part because there still were all political and social alternatives out there. So it wasn't like the victory uh, of neoliberalism and capitalism was complete, right? There's still <laughs> this worry that Things might go abroad or things might go askew, but there was also the possibility that things could improve, that there was a utopian future that would look very different available to us uh, Mm -hmm. through a change in relation to technology. And he says that once the 1980s goes away, along with the class of the Soviet Union, amongst other social factors, cyberpunk itself becomes commercialized and you never really see another genuinely insurrectionary aesthetic emerge. Uh, Or to the extent that they are, they do appear, they're almost always commercialized and banalized immediately. And I do think there is something legit to that criticism, because take, take, uh, take RoboCop, for example, right? Uh, RoboCop is a fantastic movie, and it basically predicts a future where giant corporations have taken over the city of Detroit, which has become a massive hellhole. Uh, nominally, these corporations are committed to getting rid of the drug trade, but of course we find out later on that they're deeply linked with the gangsters who are running the drug trade, in part because they want to fuel, use the fuel and anger that's generated by the uh, spread of drugs in order to convince the people to pay for more cops and more expensive forms of cops. It's a very, very subversive, very angry film in a lot of ways, and it's hard to think of something that has really innovated upon that aesthetic approach since then. In some yeah. ways, i think in a way they're, they're saying
2: they're saying we're like the past of this future in a way is the message in those sorts of visions but we'll never get any after 1989 1991 the the fall of the soviet union we'll never get imagining a future like the man in high castle or something like that where it could go in a totally different direction it's, it's we we're foreclosing different kinds of futures as we move into the actual <laughs> future
1: Can you think of a better bookmark for this than Back to the Future, which came out in the 80s? Because in the first part, they go back to the 60s, and the 60s is this kind of pastoralized, you know, you got the bullies, you got the nerds, you got whatever, and it's kind of safe. And then in the other, I think it's part three, Back to the Future, uh, he goes to the future that the bully controls, and then it again becomes this dystopian urban Nightmare, because... uh
0: Oh, you're thinking part two. Part, part three is when he goes to the old okay. west.
1: Part two, the, when Biff controls it because he gets the sports betting book, Um, then it turns into exactly like another Blade Runner urban scenario. So maybe you have that anxiety expressed of like, where is, where is this going with these corrupt bullies in charge and how do we get back to what we're safe with, which is, you know, for the 80s, Small town school dance, hokey-smokey shit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh-huh. I mean, one of the things, and this is kind of Jameson's points, that really comes up in these cyberpunk dystopias, and I suppose you could see Back to the Future too, that's kind of echoing that in a certain way, is a real resistance, uh, both to the anxiety of communist totalitarianism, but also an anxiety about where responses to communist totalitarianism might take the United States, right? As it becomes increasingly jingoistic increasingly plutocratic, and increasingly divided by race, drugs, and other things. Uh, And there is at least the prospect that there's something seriously wrong, or that something needs to change dramatically in a revolutionary sense. And it's hard to see that in definitely a lot of 1990s uh, and 2000s films. I'd say that maybe there's a little bit more of that right now, once you enter the kind of end of history period, because all that's foreclosed. And in that sense, you can also talk about a different kind of 80s nostalgia, which is again for the countercultural dimensions of it uh, that disappeared yeah, for a when, long period uh, culture of
2: time. jamming was big, and uh, writing writing like bill, writing on billboards, changing advertisements into a, a kind of ironic opposite message. The culture jamming. Movement, oh yeah, yeah. But it was essentially like almost like a, a anti-consumerist. Because when, when we think of the eighties, right, we should think of materialism and consumerism as becoming primary cultural. Foundations of, of America and the world at that time, and and culture jamming and ad busting and all that was about you know disrupting that materialistic consumerist behavior by writing something ironic some ironic message on an already existing advertisement. It's almost like what Banksy does, but to advertisements instead of just you know quasi vandalism. It was quasi vandalism with a anti consumerist message.
1: Eric, I was thinking when you were talking earlier, we haven't really talked about the capitalization that occurred during the eighties, and I think someone mentioned Wolf of Wall Street already. But one of the we have these dystopian future, uh, really advanced technology images, and I wonder if there's another thread to pull on here with respect to what we talked about last week, um, Lyotard, which is the computerization. Of knowledge, because the '80s is also part and parcel with the uh, the adoption of computers to run shit, and especially computers running shit in terms of the stock market and to make trades a lot quicker than I don't know whatever it was that they were doing before. But uh, the computerization of finance is another aspect that maybe these films are. Are sort of an outlet for or they're 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 unconscious culturally thinking, what is what are computers gonna what are the rich going to use computers for in the future? Like how would one write a cultural history of the eighties today? You'd have to put,
2: you know, technological advancement in one place, computerization of finances, the invention of synthesizers and the change of video music. games. Well, CGI, video games, all the technological stuff on one side, <laughs> because people aren't nostalgic for that stuff that's happening behind the curtain. People are nostalgic for the pop culture stuff, the stuff that's yeah. on the surface, right? Which is movies, music, fashion, those sorts of things, right? And not, like, people aren't like, well, Reagan was around when gangster rap came out, so I hate gangster <laughs> rap.
1: Like, not, nobody's making that connection.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point.
1: Let me float a little bit of a hypothesis in terms of nostalgia, because the whole point of nostalgia is not that it's for an actual time, so it wouldn't actually be for the time of Reagan. It would be for the time when, to listen to music, you had to open up a Walkman, press the eject button, put the tape in, the tape ends after uh, 15 songs, then you have to flip the tape over and listen to the other half. Because I think, like, outside of nostalgia, the Zoomers love uh, Stranger Things. I mean, it appears. I would I would guess do they? they do. Yeah. Because it's a you know <laughs> stupid teen drama, whatever it is.
3: But oh, maybe yeah.
1: The 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 overall friction or the overall um, nostalgic arc that I might point to, if I were trying to theorize what it is about the '80s that is very different from now, is the special effects were bad, noticeably bad, and that almost makes them good. Uh, compared to something like the Avengers cuz our effects are too good. They are too they are too weightless. It's like they have no friction because they just slide through our movies uh, uh, undetected. Music has no friction. You just put it on your phone, you listen to it endlessly. There's no there's no tape flipping. There's no be kind please rewind when you're trying to find a movie. Like to go to a movie store, you have to use your body to physically get to the movie store as opposed to you know flipping flipping through a digital screen. So I think if I were to try to mediatize the the nostalgia it would be um that's the last time that our bodies mattered. That's the last time when you had to mm-hmm. like uh consume media in a sense that it delayed you. It wasn't immediate. It stopped you. You had to like cho- make choices whereas now it feels more like a continuous flow a wash that uh, yeah, really demands very little of you. you. Oh, that, that's a perfect yeah, like, another example the computerization of knowledge from leotard exactly. is they now you don't you. even the have algorithms. to choose what to watch it'll just choose what to watch autoplay and the, mu-
3: the mu- and the music too i've actually discovered so much music because of uh because of like whatever that spotify feature is right where it's just like a spotify playlist like based on you can even just choose like five songs and then based on those five songs, it'll just keep playing music that's like kind of similar to that. And you don't need to think.
0: Yeah. And I really think there's a phenomenological dimension to this also that's yeah, associated agree. with the sense of innocence, because to draw upon your theme, there was a funny meme about this the other day, uh, where somebody was carrying a giant boom box, you know, like one of those things that you actually had to like use two hands to carry, uh, you know, if you've watched the movie, uh, with John Cusack, you know, how he holds it up there, um, uh, <laughs> Right? There was a real tactility to sharing music with people then, uh, and a real physicality to that, that you just don't have now, uh, where you can share music on Spotify, you can all listen to it in an independent place, even many hundreds of miles apart, uh, And Say Anything. That was the name of the John Q movie. That, uh,
2: Say Anything? Yeah, that's it. 1989.
0: Yeah. And I think people are nostalgic for that tactility uh, in their phenomenological everyday life that we lack now, um, because it required... A degree of togetherness uh, and a degree of physical association that's just not required by the technologies that we have available right now.
2: That's interesting because there is an enorm- enormous amount of continuity in that sense between then and now. But th- well, then, what makes the discontinuity is again, like shifts in, I guess, kind of like cultural aesthetics and aesthetic taste. Or big shifts but otherwise since the 80s there's been a relative lots of continuity in that respect of, of i guess technologies like that changing and becoming what you're saying like less tactile less bringing people together and more just connecting people but not necessarily bringing them together
0: i'll, I'll give you another example that steven spielberg uh, constantly complains about uh which is the way blockbuster viewing uh, has changed right uh, <laughs>
1: that's his fucking but, fault
0: yeah yeah no 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 doubt but I mean, there has been a transition away from the model he pioneered, right? Because starting with Jaws in 1975 and then Star Wars, you started to have the advent of these big special effects driven blockbusters, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., all the ones that you mentioned. But there was one thing about them that's different than what we see today, which is that you had to go and share that movie with other people at a theater, right? If you wanted to watch Jaws or you wanted to watch Star Wars, then you went opening night, you stood in line for hours and hours and hours because you couldn't buy things online, uh, and then you watched it with everyone else. And then you shared and you talked about it. Nowadays, you know, with Netflix, uh, oddly enough, you know, the medium through which stage your Things appears, you don't have to do that, right? A lot of material is available on demand. You can watch it from the comfort of your home. And so there's not that shared experience of watching a blockbuster movie together. Uh, and some people, I think, are nostalgic for that as a kind of communal event that could tie a community together movie lovers or blockbuster lovers for a brief period of time through the phenomenological experience not just of watching the movie but of sharing it with other people who are in your immediate vicinity
2: hell I, i'm nostalgic for that and i wasn't even born then. that time
1: <laughs> well that's what i was just gonna say i think for for younger people like who grew up after, in the 2000s even they they see these kinds of things happening on tv and they've actually never had to experience it probably when we were coming up you still yeah, of course you did. You you had to go to the theater with your friends when the big yeah, the definitely. big movie and, came out, and that's like, your body physically going to a place. Yeah, go to a video, or to a video shop. store
3: to rent a movie, old jumbo video yeah. or something
1: like. Yeah, that. you yeah. had to fight over which one you were gonna watch because the new releases costed a lot more than.
3: Have you guys seen actually? Have you guys seen that like uh, there's a Great Onion video that's like a little documentary about like. And it, it was actually made way before Netflix was ubiquitous. It's kind of funny like, how, how uh, like, kind of prophetic it was. And uh, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a blockbuster museum, and it like, shows guests going there. And it's like, this is a time when people had to, had to go, and they lived in <laughs> yeah. such a difficult time. It's like, was the movie going to be there? Did somebody else already take it out? And then it's like, they have reenactors who are like blockbuster employees, and they're like, we have the movie, but our only copy has been checked out. And it's just like. Do you, do you <laughs> guys remember really-
1: this? I don't know. I bet our listeners don't. But it's Netflix started as like vending machines, yep. for, were they yeah. For with a I've D- heard of that. I think they were DVDs. No, not no, no, it wasn't
3: vending machines. It was a uh, it was mail. It was mail DVDs. It was DVD mail. But they yeah. had the vending
1: machines where you could you had to bring it Later. back to after you rewinded it.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, like a drop off box. I think no, no. I think you could just mail them back. Like if I'm not mistaken, they would send you new movies every month, and then they would send you back an envelope to send back the old ones. Uh, to our Zoomer listeners, know if you do actually want
0: to experience Blockbuster in its full glory, there is a way you can do it. Uh, find a Duty D'Air Blu ray, uh, get his friend, get their friend really, 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 really stoned, and <laughs> go up to them and ask them what they think about that movie. Uh, and that'll more or less give you 90% of what it was like to go to a Blockbuster. So. Just I mean, just I remember to with people.
3: the VHS tapes too. I mean, and having, I remember we used to have like a little machine that that was just a, a VHS rewinder. It wasn't even your VCR. It was like a high speed rewinder that we would put the movies in.
1: Well, you got to save that 50 cents because if you don't rewind it, they charge you 50 cents on your, on your Blockbuster yeah, ex- account.
3: Exactly, exactly. Netflix tried to offer uh, Blockbuster. They were like, hey, why don't you buy us? And Blockbuster was like, no, this seems lame. You're not going anywhere. This will never take off.
1: (laughs)
2: Nobody's going to get the movies remotely.
1: What the hell is that? The the funny funny. thing about this nostalgia, though, is that you get to experience it in terms of its imaginary. But if you had an A, B choice about whether you go to the movie store every time you want to watch something, no, no one would pick that. But I think it also speaks to what Matt was bringing up, this lost phenomenology that we kind of know is something that's lost even if you didn't live through it we know it's not there now and I mean I've see- you see this in these remake callbacks the way that they're directed because you know the director will zoom directly into the uh, person opening up the Walkman putting the tape in like we have to really pay attention to this um, you know it's 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 service to our nostalgia.
0: Yeah, I'll give a good example of a movie that I actually like quite a bit, which is the new It remake, uh, not the It part two, but It part one, because you see kind of signifiers of this in productions that deliberately hark back to the 80s, which is the kind of the physical tactility of life back then. I mean, what do you see in E.T., Stranger Things, or the It remake? It's always little kids riding around on their bicycles through town, going to movie stores, going to get ice cream, making tree forts, things like that, right? Uh, And today, you know, I'm not trying to sound old because I actually really like video games, right? There is a sense, at least, that there isn't this kind of tactility uh, to childhood any longer, which means I think for a lot of people, it's lost a degree of its innocence.
2: Yeah, that's that's it's interesting that nostalgia does that to you like it's it's a fantasy like whatever nostalgia nostalgic retellings of older decades like the 80s it's fantasy it's not what it was really like but it makes us want it But it's something that we would never do, even if it was an option, right? Like, who would go to Blockbuster if it was an option today? Nobody would fucking do that. Who would go to back to a world before cell phones? Yeah, like, like, but, but we crave that. I still remember calling my friends on the landlines and their parents or siblings answer, be like, "Hello, it's Johnny there," and like that. It's nostalgic, but you would never do that. But it just it's something you just want. Some people, some
3: some people love that stuff, Uh, like. And everyone would hate them. No, (laughs) No, I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) I can tell you, even something, though, that is basically anticipating uh, a lot of the stuff that we live with today had a bit more of a tactile and communitarian quality to it, at least uh, seen in hindsight, right? Uh, And I didn't live through it, so that's what I have to say, right? You know, take my mother, for example, right? Uh, My mother will, to use the Michael Jackson example, right, constantly talk about how she and her sisters sat down together to watch TV, to watch Michael Jackson uh, do the moonwalk, right? Um, Or watch the Billie Jean video because back then you couldn't just watch music whenever you wanted, music videos whenever you wanted to. You had to sit down and wait because NTV would play it at a certain time of day and everybody waited for it, right? And I would find that extremely frustrating. I would fucking hate it. If I had to sit there and be like, oh, so I have to wait eight hours, I have to wait eight minutes to listen to a song or watch a music video that I want, this is unacceptable. But... For her, nostalgically remembering the times where they all anticipated these things together is something that you know she cherishes as a memory, and you can kind of see why. Again, because there's a physicality to it, there's a communal dimension to it, uh, there's a kind of temporal anticipation uh, that you don't have nowadays that can somehow make the experience seem more special. All that stuff is not necessarily lost, but hard to replicate.
1: So, when you're when you're listening to the radio, you have to call the radio station and ask for the song. And if you get through, then you have your finger on the record button on the tape deck, so you can record it. And that's how you get a song.
3: <laughs> yeah. Or, do you guys remember? Actually, I saw someone on Twitter like ask, "What was the last CD you remember purchased?" Do you guys remember what the last CD was that you purchased?
0: I do.
1: Offspring.
3: Uh, I
0: think. It, I got. Offspring. No. Arcade Fires the Suburbs, Uh, it was for a girl I was dating at that point, because I liked it a lot, and I was like, here, this is some Canadian music, she was British, you'll enjoy it, and she fucking hated it. She was like, this is trash, what do you feel to be a (laughs) T2? I was like, oh, we're going to have problems
3: then. Uh, What about you, Eric, do you remember?
0: God, I
2: can't. I, I don't know if I can remember. Maybe it was some obscure artist named Tallest Man on Earth. I can't. I can't remember. Interesting. The one, mine the most was, clear
3: could, one was hot dog flavored water Limp biscuit. Obviously. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> My, mine. I can't remember which one was last, but the two that I remember is either like the Beastie Boys anthology, which was like an anthology of uh, their music that came out I think in like '99 or 2000, and then Grammy Rap nominees 1999, which is a great. Uh, collection of, like, classic uh, late 90s rap. Uh, when you're a um, kid getting uh, your
2: hands on one of those, like, warning label CDs
3: yeah, too? Oh, uh, yeah, totally, nothing, totally. nothing better. And, uh, and I remember, like, that was, I mean, that was 99 or 2000. So, and the reason I think, like, I stopped buying CDs after that is because my dad was, like, a super early adopter of CD burners. Like, uh, I don't know if you remember when those were coming out. So, like, I just started burning all my music and, like, stuff, like, uh, like in, in, in 2000, 2001.
1: I got a, the reason I stopped buying CDs was because LimeWire, or no, it was Napster, then LimeWire. Napster, yeah. But then I got an MP3 player that held 20 songs if you reduced the quality to like 192 kilobits a second. But if it was at 300 (laughs) kilobits a second, it only held like 12 songs.
3: Oh, man. So I had to
1: reload it before school in the morning.
3: So it's like, I mean, it was like an album. You could just basically fit an album on there.
2: That's not bad, though. Yeah, the '80s came back to kill Napster, though. Metallica sued them.
3: Oh yeah. Uh, it was it was all uh, I reverse mean, it was, it was A futile effort. A futile effort. Oh yeah.
2: What are you stopping the seas of change? I don't think there's so. nothing
0: yeah. more rock and roll or more punk than sitting there being like, "Hey, that's our music, and if you dare to listen to it without us getting royalties, then we're gonna th- sick an army of lawyers on you." <laughs> Fucking metal. Yeah, yeah exactly. if you want something really dark, season three of Stranger Things started to demonstrate a new kind of nostalgia, uh, which is nostalgia for the ni- 1980s mall culture, uh, since malls are disappearing everywhere. Uh, so the whole thing is set at Starcourt. And it kind of made me think a little bit like, yeah, this was really the kind of heyday of the this, the mega mall, right? Where you would go, you would gather, you would shop for sometimes the entire day, you would eat, you could even go in some of the bigger ones. To ride, right? You know, they'd have those big slides or whatever it happens to be. You know, all that's disappearing now. Uh, And it's interesting Mm -hmm. because when I started, you know, studying critical theory, malls were kind of held up as these kind of temples of consumerism, neoliberalism, uh, and avarice, right? And exploitation. And now it seems that people have found a way to give a nostalgic dimension to the experience of going to a mall. Uh,
3: Well, they became so irrelevant as soon as something becomes irrelevant. I feel like it's it's subject to nostalgia. (laughs) Right. It's like, uh, yeah, it's like no one cares about them all anymore. Yeah.
0: I mean, like, when was the last time somebody sent you a text message being like, hey, let's go shopping together. We're going to go to the Eaton Center and we're going to wander around for the entire day. Yeah, just doesn't happen.
3: <laughs> Sounds like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, the mall is kind of funny that way. Um, yeah, I was thinking also that, I mean, I know we're talking about, like, the 80s and stuff, but, I, you know, I feel like this transition point away from, like, experience, like, embodied experiences, right? I feel like we've been on this trajectory, like, in some ways since the 80s, the computerization of everything— And, you know, we've been we've been edging towards that direction through the 90s and then accelerated, obviously, into the 2000s. And I feel like now COVID is really like the thing that that I feel like is going to I predict that it's going to be looked back upon as like this transition point, uh, like not necessarily because of like the disease, but just because of how it forced us to really like go all in on the computerization of like work, of shopping. Like, you know, before COVID, like you could always do the shopping that way. You could. You know, you could you could meet online if you wanted to. <clears throat> I think I probably said like in one of our earlier episodes earlier in the pandemic that like one of the things I kind of liked is sometimes when I was like too busy at home and a student would want to meet with me, I would suggest occasionally I'd be like, well, could we just Skype? Like, I don't really have time to come to campus right now. And students would often be like, oh, that's weird. Like, I don't know. Like, why, I'll just wait for another day. And like now it's been so normalized, like like for I, forever now. I'm sure like that's just going to be the norm. And like so that's like just one example of something that like even though the technology existed. For whatever reason, we still had the like habit of like preferring like the embodied <clears throat> engagement. Like we were only kind of we only kind of had one foot into like the stream of full computerization. And COVID, in a way, was like okay. Well, these technologies are now like all available, and it's like now we're kind of forced to use them. And like now, I feel like both feet are, are in. And I think like we're gonna look back on on it as like a real a real the, the like kind of last push towards that.
1: Hey, and this podcast is a embodiment of that. Most of our first episodes true. were in person and we've done one since. <laughs>
3: <laughs> true. Very fucked true. Up
2: in-person, fucked up our in person, fucked up our D games.
1: Yeah, Eric, didn't we we tried one time playing online and uh, never again. I spent a lot of time writing that campaign too.
3: But yeah, no, I, I but I mean I I thought of it too, cause like, you know, even with malls, like I think, yeah, of course like nobody But like, but I would sometimes, I mean, even like before the pandemic, there was like times occasionally when I'd be like, okay, well, I guess I'll have to like go, like when I need new clothes, I'm like, I guess I'll just have to like go and, you know, try something on. But then I realized like a lot of these, like during the pandemic, a lot of these clothing stores started just being like, you know, free returns, like, like they'll pay for like the return label. So I was like, okay, well, fuck, I'll just like buy clothes on online now. And like, I don't know, the last time I went to the Eaton Center, it's like, why would I bother going? It's like the worst, you know? And Jameson brings
1: up our little Eaton Center, I mean, it's not little, it's fucking huge. But if Jameson brings up our Eaton Center as an example of post modernity because the space is so anti human, because it gives no like course to the body, it's so tall, it's uh, like a, this giant massive cathedral. And how much more. I
3: hate the Eaton Center. Yeah,
1: yeah, I don't think anyone likes the Eaton Center. Tour, It's like a tourist mall. It's so bad. But anyway.
3: Literally, like, I saw. Sorry, sorry. sorry I just quickly, I saw someone tweet like a list of things, like checklist of like stuff to do in Canada if you're visiting. Oh, and I fucking, saw that, yeah. The Eaton Center was on there, and I was like, "Why the fuck is the Eaton Center <laughs> on there? What a stupid <laughs> idea!" I mean, That's I also same as any mall. That Ottawa. Was just its own category, like nothing of the stuff in Ottawa. Ottawa was just like something to check off the list, and I was like, "Fuck, you're putting this." (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, that's fairly accurate. Its its own category, but
1: if Jameson is saying the Eaton Center is an inhuman space, how much more is the computer an inhuman space? It's it's an acceleratedly inhuman space.
2: That's very true. This actually
1: is bringing me back to something I've been thinking about quite a, a bit lately, which is my my own interpretation of Marxism, Hmm. because the big objection to Marxism is that it ends in class war. But it's not actually class war, it's the interests of people versus the interests of capital. And I definitely think that's a better reading. If there is a conflict to be had, it's not really between person versus person, it's really between capital and human and whatever vestigial interest we have in the human and why it matters as we become increasingly marginalized according to the functioning of the world and uh, i think you i think you're definitely onto something or correct that we'll be- we'll look back at the covid times as an accelerant towards whatever whatever shape that conflict ultimately takes, if it takes one at all.
0: Of course. You're telling me I have to go buy my own groceries? Yeah, that's
3: interesting. I mean, there's a part of me, there, there there there's a there's a part of me that agrees like that that there is something more inhuman for sure. I mean, I mean, I think that's that's doubtless, but like more inhuman than the incinerator. I mean, I don't know, like cause there's 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 another way in which like maybe I'm just weird, but like the convenience factor. Like, is convenience inherently inhuman? Like, because You know, to some extent, I feel like, okay, like now that I'm freed from like the inconvenience of having to go to fucking H&M or something or like Uniqlo to go shop for clothes. And like, you know, I'm going to that's going to be like three hours of my day. Now it's like I go online and like I just choose clothing and it takes me like maybe half an hour max if I'm really taking my time, like going through looking at stuff. I know the convenience is there, but
1: that's the thing that everyone is returning to in the in the film, like Stranger Things, at least the beginning of Stranger Things they made no like the whole point was zoom in on the walkman like holy shit that's a walkman look at this beautiful artifact of the but past what's, but
3: what's but what's the connection to humanity right like do you think there's something the body, more humane about inconvenience the body. the body okay so the body okay so but i don't know like like i mean i i know what you mean like like there's a way I, i'm i'm sympathetic to it but i guess the reason why i want to resist it a little bit is because i think maybe what gets undervalued like, cause it's like, now I have time to do other things with my body. I don't know. It's like, it's like, it frees me up. Like, and I can go. And like, it's like, it's like, what's so human about like, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess.
1: No, I shouldn't have said human. I should have said embodied. Cause it picks okay. up on what we started with. The, yeah. the, okay. true, the Eden true. center is an antibody place. Cause it's just gargantuan and terrible Yeah, I get, I and, and hearkening back to our Merleau Ponty series of episodes and content. the, the friction that you deal with the world with, with your body, is where you learn stuff and where you actually produce memory. So even a simple a simple example of that is Matt uh, re-articulating what his mom said. You got to sit in front of the TV for four hours waiting for this video to come on, and that's a memory that she has. And I think you can extend this to various other places in life where this friction produces not just like... Oh, nostalgic memories, but embodied memories where you feel uh, your intersubjectivity is dependent on the world.
3: Exactly, because because I, I would say there's there's no, there's no place that I feel more alienated and inhuman than the fucking Eaton Center places yeah. like it, right? So so it's like in some ways it feels more jarring and more like alienating from like myself. I'm just in this the hordes and like this high ceilings and it's just yeah I, I don't like that place at all. I, I would give it a yeah. somewhat
0: different spin, right? I think. There's definitely a way that you can have a reactionary approach to convenience, right, uh, and expediency, and say uh, that it's just better for us to go back to a time period when life was a struggle. And some have actually said that. But I don't, that's I what mean, I mean. I Dost- don't
1: think we're actually saying that. I think no, no. that's why we're turning it into fantasy, into 80s movies. No,
0: no, no, I, I agree with you. I'm Just give me a second. I'm going to get to that. I mean, you, you can read Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, right? And that's one of the things he says, if everything in life was provided for you, you'd be bored and you'd want to smash the Crystal Palace, Uh just for the sake of smashing it. Crystal Palace being like the first truly modern building built uh, for the World Expo, right? Uh, On the other hand, I think to Pills' point, uh, what he's talking about isn't necessarily uh, the fact that what we want to get rid of is convenience or expediency. Uh, I think what he's pointing out, just to speak for you, is precisely the fact that the Eaton Center isn't really convenient or really all that expedient. It's there to get you to do one thing, uh, which is to shop and consume. Uh, and not necessarily enjoy your time there, right? Or to engage in meaningful, deep human relations. Uh, and I think if we were to approach designing buildings and designing social spaces from a kind of post-capitalist standpoint, we would still want them to be very convenient, but we would have a different conception of convenience. Uh, one that stresses the human element, let's just use you know Pills's term, Rather than I, I, I want to walk and, that back
1: I want to walk back human I meant I meant embodied I it's just, it's just a nice I'm choice. not a humanist,
0: sure, but you, you know <laughs> what I mean you know, more human I mean, human space in the sense that you know it's inviting and encourages reciprocal relations of some depth uh, and some caliber. It doesn't just incentivize you to move as quickly as you can through these, but spaces. Do you think, but do you think that that's you but is that
3: really the mall I mean in some ways, ironically, the mall was designed to be more convenient than the alternative before it, right, which was that you'd have to go to like individual stores in your little town and then you would actually like in a way that was what, like the life slowing you down a little bit because you're like okay i have to go to the shop the mom and pop shop right in my neighborhood like the clothing store and you develop a relationship with like that clothing store and like that whatever place and then now it's like no we're just going to shrink it into one space put it in the mall and everything's there that you need and you only need to go to that one place <clears throat> and there's hordes of people around you and uh yeah, yeah, yeah. but oh, i yeah. think
0: there there could be ways of rectifying both or to have a little bit of both of those things at the same time, right? And I think that's part of the issue here because there is this alienated quality to going to the Eaton Center or any mall, right? Where you're dealing with people who have no kind of sense of affect towards you, uh, where you feel disembodied um, in part because no one is acknowledging your presence or your existence. And it's primarily oriented around getting you to consume as quickly as possible, right? And it's not necessarily designed to get you to enjoy and relax and to kind of cultivate uh yourself at any given point but i do agree that you know we don't want to go back to some antiquarian system where you have to walk five miles to go to the corner store where you'll strike up a conversation with joe over a cigarette and you have to walk five miles back that'd be a huge Hey, i bet you
1: this was the nostalgia they had in the 80s when they had to go to the mall they would say remember the old mom and pops those were the days people uh, had real connection back then Well, insofar as the 80s was looking back
2: at the 50s, right? The 50s was road culture. Like, yeah, you know, it was just, yeah, like, like you know, like whatever point. Jack Kerouac's the road, kind of like getting in your car, pay five cents, get a full tank, right? You go driving. The 1980s was the golden age of the mall. It was like a big warehouse, if ever, which is so.
3: driving, which is driving culture, too, right? Because malls are designed specifically for drivers, right? Big parking lots. That's the problem with like main streets, right? I mean, I live on a main street, and I actually, what I love about it is because it's like a walking culture, right? It's not really, or biking, right? It's not really a good car, car culture. Why? Because there's no fucking parking right? you can't park yeah. anywhere the mall is designed specifically for car cultures so that everyone can go and park and then go into the mall right and like and um, but of course exercise. i don't have a car i bike and i like and i like being able to go to these different stores right here on Dan Fourth avenue right so it's like a, you
2: go shopping there's restaurants there's arcades in the malls in uh, the yeah. 1980s holy shit
0: i'll, I'll give an example of what i was talking about though like david harvey has spent a lot of time on this as a kind of marxist geographer right and this, one of the nice things I like about his approach to both designing cities and designing social spaces is he's not reactionary in the sense that he says we should go back to the day of walking five miles to get to Joe's Corner Store to have a cigarette with Joe and then walk five miles back. Uh, but he also doesn't really tend to like these kind of big postmodern spaces that are d- deliberately designed to provoke this disembodied, Let's I'll use that term, quality, right, and just get you consumed. He says, you know, if you look at things like... Um, For instance, cooperative spaces or fairgrounds, for example, right? They are intended to be convenient, to be quick, uh, but also to get you to feel relaxed, to talk to people, to interact with them on a bit more uh, than a purely exchange basis. Uh, Now, they're not perfect, but we could use these as models to maybe think about how to design similar spaces when it comes to things like consumption uh, or acquisition, because why not have a space? Uh, That marries the best of both worlds together if we could have it, right? And I don't think we've really achieved that yet. Uh, And I think that a lot of people want spaces like that because I don't necessarily think, looking at things from a post-COVID viewpoint, that we really all just want to be sitting on our computers, getting whatever it is that we want, however it is that we want, but not interacting with others.
1: I mean, I do.
3: (laughs) I want to avoid as many sales associates as I possibly can.
0: How
1: can I help you today? Can I help you find anything?
3: No, please.
1: But I mean,
2: that's from our perspective. Yeah, computers can do that better. But from a previous perspective, right? Talking to a human is obviously the best way to get what you want. (laughs) Talking to a store. Sometimes I will go
3: to the store. When I do sometimes go to the store, I'll go and I'll look and I'll find the thing that I want. And then I'll just go on my phone to confirm that it's available online so that I don't have to interact with anybody. <laughs> that's not true. That's the right. main reason is really just the price. It's going to be cheaper online.
2: Well, that's what I was saying about nostalgia—is like the desire for things that you wouldn't actually want today. We don't want—we don't want malls, but we also kind of feel a little bit, you know. That's a—if you were—if you went to high school and it was not too far away from a mall, that's probably where the fuck you hung out and met up with everybody. Yeah, that's where the action's happening. And that's where you assembled. the The mall that I went with my. The mall that I was near in my high school, it's not there anymore. They cite, you know, it's a strip mall now. Can't can't afford to uh, heat and cool these buildings anymore. Too much cost.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think nostalgia is inherently pretty dumb because uh, it does engage in this kind of act of fantasy the way that Victor does, which isn't to say that I'm immune to it, but probably the worst instance of it isn't really even 80s nostalgia. It's whenever somebody will sit there and get nostalgic for their teenage years for example and if i knew them when i was teenagers uh they were we were teenagers i'm like you don't remember what you were like like that you were miserable your girlfriend dumped you uh you had no money you constantly complained about your parents and you used to tell me that you fucking hated life and just wanted to die so don't give me this whole thing like being a teenager was all that great you know every period in your life has things that suck about it look towards the future stop looking towards the past
1: nostalgia is this uh it's like a reservoir of your of your desire though i think and that's why now we missed the mall. now we missed the vhs now we miss the arcade now we miss the walkman i mean i think we were a little bit too uh young for arcades because the nes had come out by the time we were up so <laughs>
2: what to
0: internet cafes I'm not sure oh, many-
2: still even when you go to the movie theater and there's some time before the movie you go into that yeah, like, little totally. arcade there right
0: and
3: yeah, totally. I, I guess I they still kind of
2: have them but you're not playing like Mortal Kombat and like Heroes of Might and Magic in there anymore are you playing like throwing a basketball or like
1: real, like real fair sports. games Victor we gotta come over to your place yeah. and go to the uh, the arcade bar
3: oh yeah the yeah, there's, there's some good arcade bar that's like a new trend I feel like oh yeah uh, that,
2: Nostalgia 2.0 is yeah those that's the, Nostalgia uh, 2.0 arcade bars it's like all those
3: kids who couldn't drink when arcades were a thing it's like now they can drink and uh, then why don't we put those two things together it's like and vintage all right they have all the vintage games
2: it's all vintage exactly exactly
1: so we gain something in convenience which is frictionlessness and then miss the friction but again a b choice you're never going to go back to the friction because it's a pain in the ass
3: few would anyway
2: but i mean is is there an optimistic note to strike on nostalgia because if we think nostalgia Yeah, it is fun, and if we think it apart from consumerism, and you know, it's just a marketing technique. Nostalgia is something that you know, it's something. It's a, it's like a positive mental state in a certain way. When it doesn't lead you into a kind of fantasy, detachment, dissociation with current reality, (laughs) it can be a good thing. But maybe I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know how to strike a positive stance on nostalgia because it's so. I'm so used to thinking of it as a component of marketing, really.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I do. I, I have to go, but I will say that the one good thing about nostalgia is it means that any sequel which you did not get that you wanted will eventually come. Case in point, I always wanted a good finale to the X Men 1990 series, and lo and behold, it has been willed into being. Thirty really? years later, the cartoon—they're yep. doing a They're remake of a the '90s X-Men series, the one with the amazing intro music. So, oh, that's that hilarious. is the one thing you that's... can be optimistic about from a culture, pop culture standpoint. If you sit there and you think, "God damn, that series ended, and I needed more, or I didn't get a proper ending," it will come. Don't worry. That's
3: so a that's great. That's a great intro music. You should end this episode with uh, with that intro music.
0: The X-Men animated series. Oh, yeah.
1: awesome wonderful. Yeah, All right, I got one so one good. thing to say about nostalgia, which is almost always marketing as I, I I think Matt said. It's almost always marketing, but in a sense it also uh fills in the cracks, especially the phenomenological cracks that we don't know are there, they're kind of virtual, but we feel them um in the accelerated states of technology and capital.
2: Yeah, like it kind of has us looking backwards you know, the the whole uh, Marshall McLuhan rear view mirror syndrome kind of thing. It has us looking backwards, but it kind of guides us forwards at the same time. Because obviously, nostalgia implies newness and return. Return of something old, but in a new form, in a new way, right? Like this was the essence of modernism, right? Make it new. And today, we're, we're still with that. It's kind of got the postmodern elements, but we still we still make it new. Stranger things is something new. and we I don't know if our listeners still play Dungeons and Dragons, if any of them have ever heard of that or any other tabletop imaginary games, right? like this this might make you want to go back and do that more. And that could be a good thing, because that, you know, what a, Dungeons & Dragons promotes human interaction, <laughs> even a shared imagination about something. It right? also
1: promotes ritual in- satanic sacrifice, which, you know, not the best. But if you do have a good DM, a good D&D game is better than a video game.
2: Yeah, it works parts of your brain that I'm sure video games do not get at, because video games are very, uh, maybe not as bad as just sitting there watching the boob tube, but Video games are pretty bad. It's- <laughs> Tactile, you got
1: your little figurines, you have to actually use your hands to roll a dice. You're sitting around the same table. Video games
3: aren't that bad.
2: You have to imagine, you have to act, you have to sympathize empathize. You have to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And I know it, it's it's kind of just a cheap kind of plot device in in uh in Stranger Things, but it still kind of evokes something for me. <laughs> anyway, and the, I guess D&D did come out in the Late seventies, I think, maybe even early eighties, it came out and got imported. It got it, 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 and then there was a big scare, like it was promoting Demon Craft, which is which
3: the Satanic is, Panic,
2: yeah, yeah, the Satanic Panic. It merged in with that, and okay, all that, but it's still like you get nostalgic for that sort of thing too, because something, something that made people scared <laughs> back in the eighties. Then filtered through the lens of nostalgia, yeah, now it could become a kind of exciting and maybe unfortunately, maybe not depoliticized kind of activity to engage in.
1: It's it's pretty terrifying to think that one day people are going to be looking back at now nostalgically. Well, maybe we'll look back at the 2020s as the the pre-metaverse era. I don't really buy into that, but you know it could happen. No, anyway. <laughs> maybe everyone it could actually happen. wears. Who knows? You never maybe know. Maybe Zuckerberg gets his fucking way. I'm, I'm doubtful. Yeah, who knows?
3: Yeah. Who knows? I'm doubtful too. Yeah.
2: The thesis of this episode maybe is uh un uh, indeterminate. Indeed. Who knows? What are going to imagine future nostalgia for this time? Well, let
1: me uh, let me close on I'd- this question then. Do we still have if we're if we're sort of pasteurizing? The suburbs through this, uh, or th- through what we're choosing to reproduce from the '80s, do we still have pastures, or has the internet kind of destroyed that, or is the internet itself where where our new pastures are?
2: So you you mean past pastoralizing? I, you keep say pasteurizing. I'm like I'm like no no no, like no not milk, milk.
1: <laughs>
2: like the sanitized pas- the pastoral the kind of- <laughs> fantasy. Yeah. yeah yeah okay pastoralizing yeah yeah I mean. I mean it still is in many ways, but because, you know, I guess the climate change stuff now we're thinking, yeah, maybe like building car infrastructure dependent pastors are not the great the greatest way to pastoralize. We still look back to a time when we didn't have to think of carbon emissions as guiding our decisions <laughs>
3: yeah if only yeah, they were- i think the reason why the 2000s have has so far been not very pastoral maybe people will find things to be uh to like <laughs> to, to, to think about in that sense but i think like the social consciousness of the 2000s has been very much defined by like looking at all the consequences of the things that we do and like p- feeling bad about them <laughs> and like pointing out look how bad the environment is look how bad this is look how bad Look how many nascent forms of racism and oppression there are. Look how much. Look at this. Look at that. It's like, you know, the whole. I feel like the 2000s is like, in some ways, like the 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 time when uh, you know the 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 critical theory uh, kind of like insights have, have bled into like uh, everyday society, where everyone's going to be a critic about everything. Uh, and like how and like that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying, like, I, I think the the 90s still had a kind of like blissful ignorance about certain things, even though that consciousness raising was was beginning.
1: I mean, if you lived in a suburb, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I have
1: to critique you because we're in the age of critique. 2020's <laughs> the age of critique. Uh, yeah, if only it were true. It's
2: all. It's all relative now.
1: Well, boys, I think that's it. I think the 80s are dead, and we should let dead dogs lie. Enjoy this outro. Peace out.